Romans chapter 4. Lord willing, uh, we will find uh, the last verse in this chapter today. I did not expect it to go so long, uh, but the more I studied it and the more I sat in it, the more I found. And so I always want to share those things with you. I don't, I don't like leaving anything on the table. I like to eat it all. And so we'll hopefully finish up the meal uh, this morning as far as what Paul has prepared for us in Romans chapter 4. But throughout the whole chapter, Paul has taken up the task of helping us thoroughly see how the gospel works. And he does that by using the example of the life of Abraham. In the first eight verses we saw, and I know that I've repeated myself several times, that hopefully it's helping you remember these things so that when you sit down and read them, they'll come to mind very quickly. Nonetheless, the first eight verses, we saw that Abraham was justified by faith alone. Here, Paul was just concerned with what's going on in and around the time that God credited Abraham with righteousness. Paul was focusing on the context of his life. And so he winds up answering a very important question for us. How did it happen? How was it that Abraham, this man, was credited by faith? And Paul lays that out again in the first eight verses. Now, in the second part, the part that we talked about last week in 9 through 16, we saw that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, which for Paul ultimately means that justification is apart from works. We walked through the timeline. And so Paul used the timeline and he wanted to answer the question, when did it happen? And since it was several years at least after having believed, then in that moment, Abraham received the commandment to be circumcised as a sign of a covenant. And so in other words, Paul says his circumcision had absolutely nothing to do with his justification. And that was the groundwork for Paul's gospel that it was by faith and faith alone. And I thought about this this week. You do realize that we could take 9 through 16 and spend several weeks on it because in those verses, it's enough to close the door on Catholicism forever. If you just sit down in a handful of verses in Romans 4, you can shut the door on that religion that's founded on the basis of works, as well as every other religion that's founded on any sort of basis of you must do this plus faith. So you can find that in 916 so you can understand why there's a lot more to say there. But this morning, we've talked about how, we've talked about when, but this morning I want to talk about what as we examine the kind of faith that God rewarded with righteousness. And if I do my job this morning, we'll understand really the substance of faith or, or what is it made up of, okay? Now, I, I've said this every week and that we've been in Romans 4 because I've been wanting to get to the end, and here I've had to tag it on the end again, but I'm committed to finishing it out this time. But we also see at the very end of this, the ultimate purpose of faith. So I've got two things. I don't like to do two things, but we're going to have to do two things this morning. We're going to see the substance of faith and we're going to see the ultimate purpose of your faith, which is obviously very important. I think by now most of you can answer that question. If you remember back in Romans 3, Paul said this twice, that the gospel was a demonstration of the righteousness of God. That was his final statement, and he repeated it twice. So we understand that the ultimate purpose of this great gospel of ours is to demonstrate the character of God. If you don't see anything else, 
That's what you need to see in the gospel. So ultimately, we say the gospel is about the glory of God. So when I ask you this question, what is the ultimate purpose of our faith? I know where you're going to run to. But I want you to be able to understand that in the text and not just run to that and just make that statement. I mean, is faith merely the means through which we receive salvation or does God even have a greater purpose than that? Does he have a greater purpose of our faith than simply a conduit through which we receive his righteousness? Now, I also thought about this this week. This would be a great opportunity for one of these guys to pick up a biblical theological study of faith. That's what we've been doing on Wednesday nights, and we're in, uh, we're in repentance right now, and that's where Nathan has this. But I'm telling you, the subject of faith, the scriptures are absolutely replete with information to help us understand biblical saving faith. And there's, again, there's passages all over the place that teach us about faith. And I could go through a number of those, but just to highlight a few of the most important ones, Ephesians 2 talks about the source of our faith. And where does it come from? Does every man have that? Or does it come from someone particular as a gift? Where's the activation of our faith? At what moment does our faith come alive? Paul talks about that in Romans 10 and 17. What's the accomplishment of our faith? Peter will tell us that in 1 Peter in chapter 1. He tells us about the outcome of our faith. But again, I want to talk about the substance of our faith this morning, so I'll leave all that to one of the guys. But we have a tendency to use Christianese. You understand what that is. We've developed our own language in Christianity. And so we use it, and it it's, can be very difficult to understand when we tell somebody, oh, you just got to have faith. Because what they'll do is they'll take that word and they'll interpret it and define it the way that they want to, a way that it's been constructed in their own hearts and lives, because they don't know that our definitions come from the Scriptures. And so we have to be very careful when we throw around words, well, well, you just need to have faith. Well, okay, go further and help them understand what it means when we say that. Now, I think the best place, at least one of the best places to understand the substance of faith or the essence of faith is in Romans 4.18. Look with me at, at verse 18, especially the first, what, six words. In the NAS, it says this, in hope. Against hope, he believed. Now, if you find that confusing, you probably should because the Greek's confusing. In fact, if you have any other translations, what I just read probably doesn't fit in what you have. In the King James, this is how they interpret that. Who against hope believed in hope. And if you have the ESV, it has this. In hope, he believed against hope. And I don't, I'm not sure that any of that's helpful because we really don't talk that way. So rather than translating it, I try to transliterate it, meaning I just try to capture the idea of the substance of faith with these few words here. And this is what I came up with. Against all hope, Abraham trusted in the God of hope who had given him a promise. Now hopefully that helps you understand a faith a little bit better. If you want it even shorter, you can do this. Against all human possibility, Abraham hoped in God. And with that statement, we're beginning to understand what it is when we tell somebody, well, you just need to have faith. What we're calling them to do is have hope in a God against all reasonable or logical hope in the midst of their circumstances. But now, if we're going to understand 
hope, you have to understand hopelessness first or you'll never get how precious hope is. So let's spend our time understanding the hopelessness of Abraham so we can see how glorious his hope in God was. Now, we've been through several of these, but I'll go through a few of them again because you need to get the picture that the Lord is sovereignly constructing a life in the life of Abraham that is surrounded by a hopeless situation. You go through there, and if you'll notice as you read through carefully, all of these little details that God seems to be stacking up because He wants to build this mountain of hopelessness so His hope in Him will pierce through every bit of that. Now, the first hopeless thing that you'll come across if you study the life of Abraham is actually found in the book of Joshua, where he tells us what's going on in the life of Abraham before God ever calls him. Now, if you know what that is, and I'm sure most of you do, Abraham is an idol worshiper. And what that means is he's spending his life trying to please a false god in order to manipulate that god to do what Abraham wants him to do. That's all idol worship is. I'm going to form of God and I'm going to manipulate that God because there's some things that I want that God to do. So I'll placate and pacify that God so that God will do what I want him to do. That's Abraham. And so God's going to take this man and he's going to form a model for biblical saving faith. And that's a pretty tall order. That's a long way to go. Now, I told you to turn to Genesis. So run back to Genesis with me because I want you to see a few of these minor details. Go back to Genesis chapter 11, verse 29. I mentioned this, I know, before, but again, hopefully repeating it, you'll begin to see it for yourself and you, you won't need someone teaching it. But in Genesis eleven twenty-nine, we pick up on an obscure detail that's absolutely necessary for the unfolding of Abraham's hopeless life. Now it comes in, again, it begins in verse 29. Abram and his brother Nahor took wives for themselves. Now the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcai. That's all we're given there. And we find out later what is an interesting fact that actually is necessary for you to know. Sarai, as a side note, is one of the most beautiful women in the Bible. And that's going to play, that itself is going to play a role in their life two times. But in verse 30, we're given what the author wants us to know is the first obscure detail. Sarah was barren. She had no child. So even from the first days of their marriage, they begin to notice something because things weren't happening in the normal course of things. Sarah was not getting pregnant. And the older they grew and the more time that went by, they came to the conclusion that my wife is not going to be able to have children. Again, I told you just a couple of weeks ago, you don't get the womb report from Milcai. It's not important. The author doesn't want you to know. It doesn't figure into what he's trying to teach you. He's not just laying out a bunch of facts. Every little detail he gives you is important. And he says, so the first thing that you need to know about the life of Abraham is why I can't have kids. Now, the second thing that begins to unfold, and of course we won't go through all these, but the second thing begins to unfold is their age. Because we're not used to getting ages in the Bible. It really doesn't factor in as important at all. 
But there's a number of places where Moses keeps telling us about the growing age of Abraham. And he goes one step further and he gives us the age of his wife. And that's another thing that you just don't find many places in Scripture. Outside of Genesis 5, which is really the obituaries of the Bible, you just don't get a lot of age reports. And yet we keep hearing this report over and over. We see him leave at 75. You know, we see him at 90-something, we see him at 100, and we keep getting these age reports. And it's painting a picture of a growing concern until finally we reach the age in the life of Abraham and Sarah when the ability to conceive is simply not on the table anymore. I mean, we had hoped for 30, 40, 50 years of marriage. We just kept having this hope that one day God was going to give us a kid. And here we are, 40, 50, whatever years later, we don't have a child. And so they've resolved it into their heart, man, this thing's just not going to happen for us. Okay? Now, the worst obscure detail, and it's really not obscure anymore, it's an obvious conclusion, comes in Genesis 18.11. So turn with me there. And again, it's the worst element that we find in the whole narrative as far as hopelessness goes. And I think I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago as well. Genesis 18, verse 11. Here's your summary. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. And then we have this phrase stuck here on the end. Sarah was past childbearing. Now that in itself is a very difficult word to translate as well. Yeah, especially from the Hebrew, the ESV said something different. This is what the ESV says about the very same word. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So the ESV is trying its, its, its approach to this particular word. And I think it's probably more helpful than NESV because we get the picture. There's no way this woman can have a baby anymore. The process has stopped. It's just simply not going to happen. And so when we get to Romans 4.19, and you, I don't want you to go there yet, but Paul takes that Hebrew word and he translates it into a Greek word because Paul is really trying to drive home the hopelessness of this situation. This is how Paul translates this. Romans 4.19, Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, the word that Paul uses is the word necruo, where we get our word dead. In fact, necros means corpse. So this whole word group revolves around this idea of death. And so Paul says, I understand what the writer's trying to do. Let me put this Greek word here that'll fit rather nicely so we can understand Sarah's womb is dead. There's absolutely nothing going on here. Everything stacked against him. And now the Lord has constructed this mountain of hopelessness in the face of this couple. And you need to understand, they really felt this. Some of you women may, have, may know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know. But they really felt an entire lifetime in a marriage of not being able to have children especially in their context and culture, that was a very big deal. Now look at Genesis 18, and you'll see the heart of what's going on here. 
I said Genesis 18. I'm sorry, Genesis 15. Turn back Genesis 15 and look at chapter 1. After these things in 15.1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear. Now, as far as my study in the Bible goes, the Lord doesn't say that for an abstract reason. He says that for purpose. And He says that in moments when we have the propensity to be filled with fear. And so God Himself, being the God that He is, is very aware of what's going on in Abraham's heart. He's very aware of what the, the brokenness is within their marriage and it's the fact that they can't have children. And so the Lord speaks to him in that moment. I know where you're at, Abraham. I know what's making y'all weep in your bed at night. I understand. I see that. And I want you to know, do not be afraid. Now, the reason I know that's what's going on is because it's repeated twice. Look in verse 2. Abraham said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And then he repeats it in verse 3. Abraham said, since you have given no offspring to me. You see, that's the reason that God comes to Abraham in the middle of this moment and says, listen, settle your heart down. I know what you're worried about. I know what you're broken about. I don't want you to be afraid. And Abraham, but Lord, but Lord, I understand. I totally understand. And I've given you a truth. And now he's calling him to faith. So here's the question that we need to come away with. Why did God go to all this trouble in establishing such a hopeless situation in the life of Abraham. And the reason for that is God is doing something to bring glory to His name. Now there's a lot of people in the Bible that we could walk through and see terrible circumstances and hopeless lives. You, you think about the life of Job. Let me just get away from the text just for a minute and let's park it right here for just a second. Think about the circumstances surrounding the life of Job. Now we've got the end of the story, Right? And so we can rejoice in the end of the story, but how would you like to be in the midst of that story? And the only thing that Job had to rest on, and he faithfully rested on it, is God is doing something, and I will not abandon my God. And so we get to the end of the story, and we know exactly what God was doing. God was revealing who He was for generations to come. And so we read the life of the story of Job, we go, what a God. What an amazing God. But in order for God to reveal Himself in that way, somebody had to play that role, and so Job got the call. How would you like to get that call? I wouldn't wish that call on anybody. But what about the circumstances surrounding the life of the Virgin Mary? Mary, this is what I'm going to do. You're going to become pregnant. You're going to have a baby. Here's the conversation that didn't happen, that would have happened from any of us. Uh oh, oh, time out. Lord, you don't understand what's going on in my life right now. I mean, I'm engaged to be married. And if I come up pregnant and my fiance knows without a shadow of a doubt, it's not him. I won't be getting married, Lord. You will absolutely ruin my life. I will be shunned for the rest of my days in the face of this community. Now, thankfully, Mary responds in a great way because the Lord gives her grace. Here's Mary's response to her circumstances. 
Behold, the bondslave of the Lord may it be done to me according to your word. That's how you respond in the midst of terrible circumstances. And here's why. Because you know at the end of the story, God's going to have glorified His name whatever our circumstances are. In fact, I thought about this while I was jotting these notes down. Can any of you give testimony where the Lord abandoned you once you got to the other side of your circumstances? I know if you're in the middle of them, you don't want to answer that, but let's just think about previous circumstances. Who in here was abandoned by the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances? You see, none of us were. And we'll do well to remember that when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances because we have a God who doesn't abandon His people. So here we find Abraham in the midst of terrible circumstances, but yet you and I know because we have the rest of the story, God is building a gospel that will redeem the world and glorify His name. And somebody had to get that call, and so Abraham gets that call. As difficult as it was, Abraham got the call for the Lord to construct His gospel. So that's, that's hopelessness in the life of Abraham. But what about our hopeless circumstances? And this is the part where I, I am convinced we don't really get because there's a hopelessness in your life because you're a sinner. And until you understand the depth of that, you will never truly worship God for the glory of His great gospel. You have to understand the hopelessness of your own situation because it's a greater hopelessness than Abraham ever had to face. Think about the womb. A dead womb plays a very significant role in our life as well because we were born from a womb that produces nothing but death. You got your Bibles. Go with me to finally now to Romans. In fact, I want you to go past four and I want you to get to Romans chapter five. A dead womb plays a significant role in your hopelessness as well. And we find that in Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. And we'll hopefully be here in a couple of weeks. But this is what Paul says here. So then, as through one transgression, meaning Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men. I don't know how that could be more plain, and yet men argue with it all the time. Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, the Lord Jesus, there resulted justification of life to all men. Verse 19, he builds on that thought. For as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So where does your hopeless story begin, it begins in the womb. Because it was in the womb that you were made a sinner because you're in the line of Adam. You were, you were born in death. You were stillborn in your sin. You were born under the wrath of God in condemnation because you are of the line of Adam. In fact, you remember what David said in his sin with Bathsheba as he's confessing with the Lord. And I think Tyler walked us through this just about a month or so ago. In Psalms 51, 
David says, confessing to the Lord, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. David understood at birth, man, I came out crying as a sinner. Now let me help you understand the reality of this truth because let's just say we lived in the days of David and we're so impressed with our king. I mean, the man, he's killed countless people. And he can pick up a harp and a fiddle and play it like nobody's business. He's wrote some of the greatest love songs ever. I mean, as far as leaders go, I'm so impressed with my king. And then you get to work on Monday morning and you find out that King David has gotten another man's wife pregnant and he had her husband murdered. Now, you and I would have a whole lot of conversations about that at work, but most of them would stem around this fact. I just can't believe that. I mean, he's such a great guy. How in the world could he do such a thing? Well, David says, well, let me tell you exactly how I could do such a thing because it wasn't a mystery to David as to why he did such a thing because David understood, I was brought forth in sin. So don't be so surprised. In fact, anytime any of us fall into sin, we ought not to be so surprised at all because all of us were conceived in sin. We were born in iniquity. That's how these things happen. You came from a dead womb. And that's a pretty hopeless situation. And we have to realize that again to understand the gospel. But not only were you born from a dead womb, right? Your own womb is dead and unable to give birth to any sort of real spiritual life. You're born from a dead womb, you possess a dead womb. I get that from Ephesians 2 where Paul writes this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Among them we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, we were by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else. Dead womb. We need life, but we don't have life, and we can't produce life. And so, our, again, our hopeless situation is worse than Abraham's. You know, what do we call this? I know some of you know. This is what we refer to as total depravity. And it can be built around this thought if, if people would just be reasonable. Abraham's situation was absolutely, totally hopeless. And our situation as sinners is absolutely no different. There was nothing that Abraham could do to solve the problem that he had. And as a sinner, there's absolutely nothing you can do to solve the problem that you have with God. I think it was Stephen Paradise that was talking with him after release time uh, this week. And he asked me if I'd saw a video that came out by John MacArthur recently, and I haven't seen it. But he preached a sermon about total depravity, and the title of his sermon was, This is the Most Hated Doctrine. It's interesting. Election is, is not, but total depravity is. Because if you're totally depraved, you're totally helpless. And if you're totally helpless, the only thing that you can do is look to God. But people don't like to be described as being totally depraved. So if you understand the hopelessness of your situation, you need to understand that you're among the very few people who actually get it. 
You'd think Romans 3.11 would be enough, right? Where Paul says, there's no one who understands. And then he goes on, there's no one who seeks after God. That in itself is enough to describe our hopelessness. We grossly underestimate the holiness of God. We grossly underestimate our own sinfulness. And to beat it all, we rely on our own ability to solve these terrible circumstances. Now, since we're here, let me say something about this. For the majority, the overwhelming majority, your hope lies in your free will. Let me say that again because I want it to be clear. For the overwhelming majority of people, especially in Southern Baptist churches, your hope lies in your free will. And if you'll think about it, if your hopelessness can be overcome by the simple action of your own free will, you're not hopeless. That is not hopelessness. If you can simply choose to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and follow hard after God, that's not a hopeless situation in any stretch of the imagination. There's nothing hopeless about that. And if that's true... The only thing that you need is a few pep talks, a few halftime speeches, a few gifted motivational speakers. I'll schedule some revival on the calendar and we'll have it so we can get your salvation up and running. Now, everything I just said is what takes place from the pulpit most of the time. Because whether they communicate it or not, their hope lies in your free will and so the only thing that they'd have to do from the pulpit is give you a motivational speech that touches your heart so you'll get yourself out of your hopeless situation. But again, I take you back to Abraham. What good was that going to do him? Absolutely nothing. And that's the same thing it will do for us. Our hope does not lie in us, nor does it have anything to do with us. There is no ability, there is no free will, there is no insight or knowledge or wisdom that needs to be gained or anything else. Our hope lies in the God of hope and no one or no thing else. Now if you get that, Matthew 5 in our Lord's sermon makes absolutely perfect sense to you. Let me read it to you and you'll see what I'm talking about. Matthew 5, 1, Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and He began to teach saying this, Blessed are the beggars in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the beggars. And they could not comprehend that. But if you understand the hopelessness of being a sinner, you understand that perfectly, because the only thing that you can do is beg. Now we have no context for beggars in this country that I know of or that I've ever seen. In fact, we have quite the opposite. We have people begging because they're trying to change their circumstances by getting money from you. And I realize all of us have become so jaded by that reality. People on street corners in Portland made six digits, some of them I was told, just sitting there with their sign, taking up money with car after car after car after car. That's not a beggar. That's a crafty, deceptive slash almost wise guy that's making a ton of money, okay? That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about blessed are the people who know in their spirit they're absolutely hopeless. Because for a beggar, the only hope that they have is in the person that they extend their hands to. God, if you don't help me, I'll die. 
And Jesus said, oh, that guy right there, he understands. In fact, he goes on to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? So in Abraham's circumstances, I'm sorry, I want you to go back because I want you to see it. No, no, don't, no, that's okay. Don't go back. That's okay. I'll read it to you. It's a long way to go. But Abraham's narrative climaxes on one question. And it's an obscure detail. I mean, I, you read it and you're like, why does it even conclude this? But if you're taking notes, it's Genesis 18, 13. And what's going on is the Lord's telling Abraham, and about this time next year, you're going to have a son. Abraham's wife, Sarah, overhears. And does anybody remember what she does? She laughs. Why do we need to know that? I've watched almost everyone in you in here have a baby. Your first one, tears of joy. Absolutely ecstatic. Can't believe it. Second one, look of concern. Smile, concerned. Third one, fear. You're just absolutely gripped with fear. And if I catch you laughing, I'm like, yeah, they've gone crazy. Because when the fourth one, some of you can say amen. There you go. The fourth one, you're done. You're going to the doctor for medication at this point because you're losing your mind. So the fact that Sarah's 90 and the Lord says, you're going to have a baby, you're going to laugh, you're going to cry, you're going to throw something. It doesn't matter. You're crazy at that point, right? But listen, the whole reason I'm convinced you have that little story in there is because of the question that follows from the Lord in verse 14, because the Lord says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Now, if you follow through the story, this is about the last thing that happens before they have the baby. So we've gone through an entire narrative of a mountain of hopelessness. Also, the Lord can ask Abraham a question. Hey, Abraham, let me ask you a question. Now that I got you where I want you, is anything too difficult for me? And then we see, really in the next chapter or two, what God does with a dead womb and two old people who can't have a baby and have a little boy named Isaac. And so we walk away from this. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing that's too difficult for the Lord. And so this is what we bring into our circumstance and our situation. You must understand your hopelessness as a sinner. And then you must hear that question in your own heart. Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? And we hear the gospel and all of heaven shouts, absolutely not. God gives life to the dead. In fact, that's exactly where Abraham goes. So you're in Romans 4.19. Look with me there. The first thing that Abraham does in this, I guess, the essence of his faith is he thinks. Let me walk you through this. And I don't guess we have a whole lot of ways to go. But first thing that Abraham does is he thinks. Look at verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated. I like the word considered best. Without becoming weak in faith, he considered his own body now dead. Literally, it says now dead since he was about 100 years old. And he also thought about the complete deadness of his wife's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith. First thing that genuine faith does is it thinks. And this is important. Abby's seen this at school. 
Because when professors stand up and they want to tear down the idea of any sort of faith, they compare faith with foolishness or faith with thoughtlessness. Because of the way that they communicated to her in class, you're just not thinking about this. Because if you'll think about this, the science is very clear. It is not possible that there is a God. It's overwhelmingly laughable that He created anything. And then you're telling me God became a man and died. And they laugh. You're just not thinking, is what they try to communicate to college students. Please use your mind, they'll say. But the very first thing that Abraham does in regard to his faith is he gives it some hard thought. Because he does understand the circumstances of his situation. A genuine faith is actually more thoughtful than any of the foolishness that goes on with those who don't have faith. And you and I must be wiser and we must give this some serious thought. If you don't, you're lying to yourself because you know that death waits. Death waits for you. And so you take that truth that you will not escape and the reality that there is a God and you know that there's a God because it's written into the very fabric of your heart. Not only does all of creation speak to the glory of God. So you've got this situation. I'm going to die. God is real. There is a God. And if there is a God, there is accountability for how we live our life. That's thoughtful. That's an easy line to follow because accountability is also woven in the fabric of every bit of our life. Ask your children. They know a great deal about accountability. Remember your own childhood. You remember a great deal about accountability. Go to work. Sit in the break room all day. Sip on coffee and watch YouTube on your phone. You'll be reminded about accountability. It happens in every part of our life. We know you can't do what you want to do and get away with it. Who can do that? I just thought of one guy, the president, maybe, but not the majority of us. And we also know that death waits, God's real, and there is coming a day when we will stand before Him and be held accountable for how we live our life. And so the first thing that you have to do if you want to understand faith is you have to thank yourself. Abraham did. And he found his situation very bleak, yet, verse 17 Romans 4, 17, he turned to the God of hope. Notice with me, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Abraham considered and Abraham turned and Abraham trusted. And then Paul gives us two reasons that Abraham placed his faith in God. Number one, it says here, Abraham knew of a God who gives life to the dead. And so being 100 years old with a wife who was 90, who has never been able to conceive, now with a dead womb, he turned to a God who he knew could give life to the dead. Second thing here, it's also in verse 17. I'm speeding up a little bit so we can finish here, but... Abraham also knew of a God who calls into being that which does not exist. And so listen, Abraham and Sarah spent an evening together knowing that life could not exist in hope that God would create life and cause it to exist.
That's faith. Where there was no life, God called into being life. Now, you and I worship that same God. So both of these realities apply to us as well. Even though we are spiritually dead in sin, dead toward God, we serve a God that gives life to the dead. How many times did you see Jesus do it in the flesh? It's incredible. And, and we translate all those times that Jesus raised the dead as physical things. No, the greater reality is the spiritual thing. I mean, praise God He can raise a physical man or a 12-year-old daughter from the dead. We'll worship Him all day long for those things. But the greater reality is all of us are spiritually dead in our sin, but we worship and serve a God who can raise the dead. And so that day that He called you by name, He called you forth from the tomb and you were raised from the dead for all eternity. And then the second thing is, we serve a God that calls into being that which does not exist. How does this speak to us? Well, for Abraham and Sarah, it was a son, right? But for us, it's not a son, but it's righteousness. You have to have it. You don't possess it. You can't produce it. So God calls into being that which does not exist. And you're granted the righteousness of God through faith alone. And all of a sudden, what you need, you have. Because it was a gift of God. It wasn't there, but He called it into being. So what's the substance of faith? I'd probably give you these few words against all hope. In hope, we trust God. So let me finish with this, hopefully understanding faith better. What's the purpose of this great faith of ours? Look at, look at Romans 4, 19 and 20. And we're finished with this last thought. It's not very long. Here's the purpose of your faith. Without becoming weak in faith... Abraham contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred, deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, doing what? Giving glory to God. And we come to the end of Abraham's faith. God designed this gospel that is solely based on a promise and He calls us to trust in that promise. And as you and I trust in that God, He is faithful and fulfills all of His promises and safely brings us home into His presence forever. God designed this gospel so every part of it would bring glory to His name. And so your eternal life rests in God, in God alone. It will not stand anywhere else. There is no other place it can rest. Our God designed it that way. So what's our promise? Again, for Abraham, it was to have a son. But this is our promise. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will never perish, but have eternal life. Do you stand in that promise? Let's pray.